0: Hi everybody, uh, Jose Luis Morales here. Welcome back to another episode of the Morales Group Show. Today we have a very special guest. His name is Don Thornton. Uh, he is a real estate investor and today he's going to be talking to us about a spendthrift trust, or the long name, non-grantor, irrevocable, complex, discretionary, spendthrift trust. And I said it all got it. the first time. So. <laughs> welcome to the show don how are you
1: i'm doing fantastic i I really appreciate you having me on
0: of course sam here so i'm excited about this episode and the reason is that i found you on social media Mm -hmm. Um, anytime i hear about ways to save clients money uh provide additional asset protection it it gets me super um, excited so for our viewers that don't know who you are is who is don and then how did you get involved in real estate investing and then specifically um how did you learn about the Spendthrift uh, trust?
1: Sure. Well, I am known as your tax savings best friend because most of us overpay in our taxes. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I work with professionals that whose sole purpose is to help people, you know, not pay taxes that they don't have to. So that's that's what I'm doing now and I came to this because I have made a lot of money in real estate and I was also writing a lot of big checks to the IRS every year, and I didn't like it. I mean, as far as my background, you know, I came into real estate completely unexpectedly. My whole career path was, I was gonna be in the State Department. I was going to be a diplomat. I was a Russian major in college. I went over to the embassy and worked for two years on a contract so I could be in the country, this is during the Soviet Union, and to get, uh, to have the ability to speak Russian, to learn to speak with Russians and get fluent, attain fluency in my language. Well, little did I know that the, the whole Soviet Union would fall apart. And then there was all this business that came in and I got hijacked by the sweet smell of money. And I was making, I was 22, 23 years old, making ten, fifteen thousand dollars you know a month in a, in a country at the time where if you had thousand dollars a month, you could live like a king. Much less, you know, ten 000 to fifteen thousand.
0: 15
1: Yeah, I mean, it was just it was just a dream, and I said, I'm not gonna go back and be a diplomat. Screw that. I'm gonna I'm going for the money. So I spent the next uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Uh, well, about fifteen years, I was over there, got married, got kids. You know, we had apartments. All we we were doing. My mother in law and I were actually doing real estate investing in Russia. We were flipping we were flipping uh, apartments in Russia at the time. Mm-hmm. But eventually, all good things come to an end, and you know, we just got to the point where I couldn't work there anymore. There was just no more opportunity for Americans. The real estate market was just—it was—it was too mafiaish, you know. I mean, you're—you're—every you're, time you do a deal, you wonder if you're going to get met with by hitmen at the at the, uh, your apartment building and put a gun to your head and shoot. So it was like, you know, what? This is getting a little too, little too uh, um, mafia-esque, mafia-esque for me. So uh, I went back. I went to Orlando, and you know, there I needed to have a way to make money. And I knew I would, I would, I'd been spoiled already. I was never going to work for anybody again. And I was also spoiled by a certain uh, uh, a certain level of income that I did not want to uh, get used to living less. So I said, well, what's it going to be? I said, it's got to be real estate. So I spent two years trying to find what worked for me. And one day Uh, I was doing mortgages and and, and retail real estate just to keep the bills paid. I left my family in Russia. I came here by myself and said, when when I got everything set up, you can come back here. So anyway, you know, I heard about, my my mortgage partner said, why don't you go to St. Pete? There's a seminar going on. This guy does short sales. So what the hell is a short sale? He goes, well, no, you can, you uh, you know, someone who owes more than the property is worth. Nobody wants it. You, could, you can get the homeowner to work with you and you can negotiate with the bank and then you can create profit. I said, you're telling me that I don't have to risk a dime and I don't have to rehab, I don't have to do anything and I can make tens of thousands of dollars in profit? He said, yeah, I said, I'm there. So I went to it, you know, and, and, and uh, I, I don't like courses. I don't like seminars. I always feel like I could probably figure it out myself. And so I just raised my hand up and said, look, I have the money for your course. What would you suggest I do? And he said, look up the, the foreclosures in your county, and just go knock on their doors and say, I, you know, I see your foreclosure. I would like for you to buy, I, I'd like to, I'd like for you to give me your house. I said, give you? He said, yes, because that way you'll know if they're upside down, because if they're upside down, they'll say, yeah, take it, I don't want it. And the very first door I knocked on, and he, he told me, he said, if you knock on their doors, that was the thing. And this was in 2003. So, and I said, okay, let's do it. And the very first door I knocked on, I got a house, you know? And so it took me about nine months, nine to 10 months for me to really get it. And then I, the, the, the hardest part was the negotiation part, but I learned how to do that just by trial and error. And then by the end of 2003, I was almost running out of money. I was really getting a little tight. And then I said, okay, I got to have, something's got to hit real soon. And so in February 17th of 2004, I got my first short sale. I made thirteen thousand seventy-two dollars and eighty-three cents. I still remember that. A week later, I made twenty-five thousand. Two weeks later, I made forty thousand. So I made close to a million dollars from February seventeenth to December thirty-first. And so I was off and running. And uh, I just realized this is my this is my deal. And that's awesome. Yeah, it was so,
0: great. So bit. That- so then you obviously started earning a lot of money uh, mm-hmm. doing short sales. Yes. And maybe we can do another episode on that because I love the. Um, uh, for anybody that's been in the real estate market for less than maybe like eight years, mm-hmm. they, they're not really familiar with yeah. the big short sale market. I'm lucky that I was familiar with it because I got into it in 2010 mm-hmm. and I got to see that. But i love to have an episode on that. But what I was going to ask you, you started making money. And then I imagine that the next step was because it happened to me as well, too. And there was one year where I paid like what I felt was a lot of money at that time. And I was like, man, I'm tired of this. Like mm-hmm. I got to figure out ways to pay less money. Right. Um, so how did you come? Uh, uh, how did you uh, learn about the spend thrust? And what is it and how and, and who does it help?
1: I learned about it by sheer chance. OK, a couple years ago. Um, a wholesaler had approached me and he wanted to work with me with short sales. And so we had a great communication. I thought it was great. And, you know, I thought, okay, so they sent me a bunch of deals and then he disappeared. And so he came back to me and said, hey, I said, yeah, what happened to you? Where did you go? He goes, no, I mean, I got something better. I said, better than short sales? He goes, yeah. He says, come to dinner. Come to Thanksgiving dinner and I'll tell you all about it. I said, I don't want to go to Thanksgiving. I mean, I I just said, whatever. And he says, look, I'll make prime rib for you. I said, okay, I'll go. (laughs) I stayed there like eight hours. And he told me all about it. And I thought to myself, this is fascinating. The reason why I was so attracted to short sales was because, first of all, not many people wanted to do it. It was less competition. But it was the... You got so much bang for your buck, like I said, because you can generate tons of money. And the best I ever had, I had, I, I had a couple of times where I did six-figure uh, discounts from the, from the bank. So it was like, wow, I can make so much more money, so much more easily with short sales than I can flipping or doing the Burr method or whatever, you know. So um, I had the same, like, I got it. When he explained the strategy, I said, I got it, I got I, said, I got to have this, I got to have this trust. So that's how, I, that's how I learned about it. And then, you know, it's been, it's been amazing ever since I've had it. Amazing.
0: So let's assume that somebody doesn't know what the trust does okay. or who does it help. So okay. let's just uh, backtrack. If sure. I don't know what the, what the spendthrift trust is. What is it? Okay. Who does it help? How does it work?
1: All right. Well, the official name of it is called a Non-Grantor Irrevocable Complex Discretionary Spendthrift Trust. I'm not going to go into that right now, but every single word has a specific role in allowing the trust to be compliant with a certain part of the U.S. tax code that allows major tax reductions to happen, okay? So I'm just going to talk to you right now about who this benefits. There's four main benefits for this trust. The first one is any passive income that comes into the trust is not a taxable event for this trust, okay? So what does that mean? If I'm a real estate investor, and I own a, a multi-family, and let's say I have 40 doors, that means that the trust, if the trust owns that building, if I'm an investor and I sell it to the, to, to the trust, I'm the trustee, so I still control everything, so that all my tenants are now paying me rent, paying my trust rent, So let's say that I get $20,000 a month combined from all my doors. That money comes in the trust as passive income, as as rental income. Therefore, that is not gonna be a taxable event for this trust, number one. Commercial realty, any leases that come in, lease income is also passive income. Royalties, book royalties, film royalties, song royalties, anything that has to do with royalties, oil and gas, Things like that, royalties are also passive income, not taxable income for this trust. And then limited partnership, limited partnership um, uh, profit sharing—that's also not a taxable event. So imagine now. Oh, sorry, uh, investment income. If you have a Charles Schwab account, Fidelity, you got stocks and bonds. You have anything? You have passive investments. That money comes back into the trust again, not taxable. So you can imagine who out there fits those descriptions of who. So right there, those people could could benefit from this trust. The second big advantage we have from a tax point of view is that when you have an asset that is inside the trust, the trust owns it, apartment building, rental property, it could be cryptocurrency, it could be whatever, anything of value that when you sell it, would trigger a capital gains tax event. If the trust sells it, that money comes back into the the trust, It is not a capital gains tax event. So you don't have to do a 1031 exchange. You don't have to do a deferred sales trust. You don't have to do a Delaware statutory trust. You don't have to take accelerated depreciation, you know, um, for real estate, right? You don't have to move to Puerto Rico for six months out of the year. You know, you don't have to drop everything into an into an opportunity zone. You don't have to do any of that, because all those have to do with deferring the, the capital gains. This one is not deferred. It's it's just it's just not a taxable event. So and then okay. So then then the third benefit is the trust can work with a business, an L L C, an S corp, and. By doing by working together, the businesses can move a substantial amount of their taxable income over to the trust as expenses. Okay, I'll get into that a little bit later, but all we're doing, the trust can add two additional expenses that the, that the companies pay, and by doing so, large amounts of their taxable income can be paid to the trust and as passive income. And so they can substantially reduce their taxes that way. And then finally, because it it is a spendthrift trust, that means that any assets that are sold into the trust are locked down as tight as you can get in this country. I'll give you a couple examples. Most property owners live in fear of the government coming knock on their door and saying, we're going to build a road through your front yard, so you're going to have to take our price, or we're going to sue you from their domain. You're going to lose everything, and so people just buckle under. If your tr- if your house and your land is inside this trust as a trust asset, they can't do anything. They cannot get m- force you to move. That's number one. Number two, you know, I'm sure a lot of you people have heard about this uh, wonderful gentleman called O.J. Simpson, and you know he had you know, the Goldmans filed a civil lawsuit against him a wrongful death, and got a wrongful ju- death judgment against him for 34 million dollars we're in the, we're like 20 plus years since then but OJ had the foresight or had good advice to sell all of his assets into a trust with a spin through provision before the civil suit was instant was instituted or, or was uh, uh, instigated, not instigated but was uh, uh, started and then they haven't cracked his trust yet so that just gives you an idea of what, so that's those are the four biggest benefits this trust gives you.
0: Okay, and then um, are you able to use the income like to live in it? So like, let's say that I sell a property and mm-hmm. I don't want to reinvest, so I don't want to do a 1031 exchange, I just want to cash out. I have the option of obviously cashing out on my investment, paying the capital gains, mm-hmm. that way I can use the money can I still use the money to live or how does that portion of it
1: work? All right, so the trust is not like a corporation or an LLC in the sense that you you have more leeway as far as what is a trust expense as opposed to what a write-off is, okay? So first of all, any asset that you sell into the trust, whether that be personal or business, the trust is now obligated to maintain and pay for those assets. So if I sell a car into the trust, that means the trust as trustee, gas, I'm paying for the gas, I'm paying for if you go to AutoZone to change out a filter, if it, if it needs to get uh, oil change, go to Jiffy Lube, everything's paid for, okay? So the house, if I, you know, our primary residence, that's now a trust asset. That means the trust pays for everything. The the mortgage, the insurance, if you're landscaping, plumber comes and does something, you know, whatever whatever it has to do with that uh, asset, the trust pays for that. So that alone relieves you from having to pay as much money as you would for expenses that are normally considered personal because now they're a trust expense, not yours. So I know that when I started doing this, I was able to significantly lower the the salary I was paying myself from my escort, because so much of what I was using my salary for to pay for our personal expenses for the assets that we had are now on the trust. So the trust pays those, okay? So for minor children, for example, trust pays for everything, food, Clothes, education, and the trust. Those are trust expenses. Okay, anybody in and above eighteen, anyone who's still getting some kind of education, the trust still pays for those. So I have a son who's twenty two years old. He's in university. So he was in a private school before that. My daughter was in a private school. Now, but she she graduated before we got the trust. So my son. So he's in. He was in a private school. So the trust paid for his tuition. Now, understand how this works. The trust is not paying me the money for me to pay the university. The trust is directly paying the university the tuition. Okay? My son has a car. I did not give the trust did not give him money to buy the car. That would be a taxable event for him. The trust bought the car. The trust owns the car. The trust pays for everything that has to do with the car. But he's allowed to drive it as a beneficiary. So I don't give him a stipend to, to go buy food at the university. The trust buys a food plan with the university, and he gets his food there. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So we're not so – so I'm sorry, yeah. go ahead.
0: It's almost like a way to take – certain personal expenses things that would normally be personal mm-hmm. expenses yes and basically instead of you paying them personally have the trust pay yes. them which makes it so that mm-hmm. you you need you can basically pay yourself less money yes. that would you would normally not be able to write off basically exactly. because like if you're using the car for personal purposes mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able to uh, unless it's for a business you likely wouldn't be able to write it off right um, so Okay. Yeah. And then, uh-huh.
1: No, I'm just going to say, I mean, you know, you if you have a beneficiary who is physically, mentally challenged in some way, disabled, then the trust pays for everything for them for their entire life. You know, it's, it's trust expense. Now, when you're an adult, it's a little bit different. I mean, you know, there's, it can pay for, like I told you, as far as showing how, with the assets and what it can pay for assets-wise and so forth. But it can't pay for food for you. Can't pay for what we call fashion. You know, um, I'll give it, I'll give an example. So I was invited uh, this weekend to go film an infomercial about the trust and my trust business. So I went, it was here in in, uh, Florida, St. Pete. So I bought some, some clothes for that because we did different shoots and they wanted to have different things. So I bought some clothes for that. The trust paid for that because that is, has to do with my, the trust business. If I had said, if my wife said, you know, honey, um, you know, you need some new clothes. And we go down to, you know, Macy's or Dillard's or wherever, Nima Marcus, and we buy clothes, that is not a trust expense. Okay. So when I was at, when I was in St. Pete, it's just like with the, the company, right? You know, we, we, we went out after after uh, the commercial, took them all out to, to uh, dinner, had a great time went out to a club afterwards, trust pay for all that because it had to do with my trust event. Now, if I had done that with just my my boys, not a trust expense. So you see how that works? And also fun. Okay. So if I just, so I'm, if I'm going to be flying to Italy this year, I'm going to, I'm probably going to spend a month there. I'm going to rent an apartment uh, and stay there and just have some fun. That is not a trust expense. Okay, so that's going to be paid for me personally.
0: So, so, are there like general rules of thumb? Like, so anything that, um, are there rules of thumb as to what is considered an expense and what isn't considered an expense? Like, use, if it's used for X, then we it's considered we use an expense.
1: Four Fs, okay. Food, fashion, fun, and facelift. Oh, by the way, medical is also a trust expense. I forgot to say that. Health health, and medical wellness, that's all trust expense. So we already talked about food, fashion, and fun a little bit, you know, with vacation and, and clothes and so forth. Those are
0: not considered trust Those
1: expenses. Those are not trust expenses, no. Okay. So um, facelift, too. Elective surgery is not going to be covered. It's not a trust expense. But, you know, but the trust pays for insurance, pays for if I, anything happens health-wise, trust pays for it. So that you know, any like acupuncture, any kind of uh, medical procedures, whether it can be non-traditional or not. Those are trust expenses. So it covers a lot.
0: So, so what's the negative with the trust? Because I mean, obviously, I'm listening to all this, and it all sounds like great. Is um, there any downfalls to this?
1: There, there can be in the sense, it been what your agenda is. You see, we got into this late, late in the day for me. I'm 59 years old. We've got everything we want. I don't care about credit, for example, we buy things for cash. So I don't need to show a lot of money personally. Now, I don't I haven't paid taxes the last couple of years either, so that's great, right? Because you know, um, officially I made a lot of very little money on my tax return because most of the trust is paid for almost everything. And I live very frugally, you know, as far as officially goes. But if I had done this 15 years earlier, 20 years earlier, then I would not have wanted to do that because I still wanted to be able to qualify for loans and get credit, credit lines and so on and so forth. So I would not have been able to take advantage of everything the trust offers because I need to show more income. And have more things in my name, so at least initially when I got the financing for them. So, if you if that's important for you, then you are gonna you're not gonna be able to get as much so that you're not gonna get as big of a chunk of the tax advantage from you personally because you're gonna be paid you're gonna be paid a, a W two salary, and of course we know that's gonna be you're paying taxes on that, right? So whatever we however much you want to uh, show is how much you're gonna pay taxes on as a salary.
0: So you wouldn't be able to get an equity line of credit, basically, because the assets are owned by the trust. In other
1: words, no, you can. No, listen, you can get financing on an asset if the asset can offer collateral. Sure, you can do that. And if you don't pay your bill, you don't pay your payment. They can they can foreclose it if it's used as if it's used as an, a collateral for a loan. Them. But the difference is is that they can't penetrate the trust to get to other assets they can go after that particular asset, but that's it, okay?
0: So it's almost like having like uh, individual LLCs for each property because they can't go after the other ones.
1: Right, but the only difference is is that any any attorney worth his, his or her salt can crack most LLCs eventually if they want to, whereas they're not going to crack this one.
0: So um, originally you said that each word in the actual name Mm -hmm. had some sort of meaning, like the non-grantor, and then the irrevocable complex, and then discretionary. Can you break that down a little bit? And that's just,
1: yeah. So when I say non-grantor trust, which means that you as trustee are not the grant, you're not the one opening the trust up. If you did, the IRS would consider this to be a grantor trust which is basically alter ego between you and the trust, they would see no difference to it. So there'd be no tax advantages from that point of view. So the way we do this is that uh, somebody else that you choose actually officially creates the trust. They use that person's social security number to get the trust EIN number, and then they, after that they make you the initial trustee, and then they resign, okay? So then they're not they're not involved in this anymore. You're the trustee. You have all the power. So that's one thing. It has to be a non-grantor trust. That's how we do this. Secondly, it is an irrevocable trust, and that does not mean that the trust can ever be altered or that can't be. You can't make changes. Uh, people tend to have that erroneous uh, belief about that. It's not true. All it means is that you can't transfer assets into the trust. It means they must be sold. And the sale must be final. So when I sell my car to the trust, the trust owns it. The trust is going to be on title. I no longer own it. That's that's why it's irrevocable. Okay. Now we sell that at a a price what you paid for it. It's called a cost cost basis because we don't want to trigger a capital gains tax event by selling our assets to the trust for a profit. So that's how we do that. It's a complex trust. It's a non-grantor irrevocable complex trust. That means that the trust governing instrument, the trust itself, is not does not require the trust to distribute any money to the beneficiaries. It doesn't say you can, it doesn't say you can't, it just it's not required to. And that's very important because most trusts especially simple trust, like a, like a um, revocable family trust, for example, or living trust. Those are called simple trusts, which means that if there is any income, it's gonna go, it's not gonna stay in the trust, it's gonna always flow down to the beneficiaries, okay? It's designed to be kind of a pass-through situation. This trust is not. The money is allocated to the corpus of the trust, to the trust itself. So the money comes in the trust bank account, it stays there. Now, listen, If going back to my son, If I wanted to, if he said, Pop, listen, I've got, you know, I need $20,000 and I don't want to tell you why. And I said, well, let me, just the trust can pay for it. No, I don't want that. I want it, it's okay, fine. So I cut him a check. The trust cuts him a check for $20,000. The trust does not pay taxes on that, but he will. That's a taxable event for him. So most important to understand here is that the trust is not required to distribute to beneficiaries. It is a discretionary trust. That means that the trustee has 100 percent, 100 percent discretion or power in the trust to do whatever needs to be done, to add beneficiaries, remove beneficiaries, you know, make all decisions for the trust. And that's important. Uh, and I'll get that in, in a second. But the final one is a spendthrift trust. And that's where the asset protection comes in. That's when I spoke previously about O.J. Simpson, about eminent domain, because that provision Means that unless they can prove that you have done criminal activity or you illegally sold your assets into the trust to avoid a lawsuit, which is called fraudulent conveyance, then they can't, it, it cannot be sued. I mean, it can be sued, but it's not going to go anywhere. The judge will toss it immediately once it, once it comes to his attention that, it's a spend, that the, whatever asset they're going after is in a spendthrift trust. So that's, that's what this means.
0: And then you, you talked a little bit about um, the sale of the property into the trust. And you mm-hmm. talked a little bit about selling it at a cost basis. Can you go over what that process looks like sure. of selling items into the trust?
1: Sure. Okay. So we have about nine investment properties that we sold into our trust. What that meant is we did a bill of sale. So we had a bill of sale for every single thing. We did a, made a list of all the assets we were selling. And we put in, how much do we pay for it when we bought it? Number one. If it's real estate, we added 25% to that for household furnishings, you know, uh, know, fixtures, whatever. Okay. So we add 25% to that. Then we, if it's an investment property, if we had, um, well, first of all, any improvements we may have made. Okay, if we put money into it, that's also added to the price. Now, if, it was, if, it's a real, if it's a real property where we took depreciation on our tax returns, then we would subtract that depreciation amount. Whatever that is, that's the number. So that number goes on the bill of sale. Our crypto, whatever price we bought it at, right there, that's, that's it. That's, now, we, we're selling everything. So the bill of sale, it's a private document. Nobody sees it. It's in my trust book. But it lists every single thing that we sold into the trust. At the bottom of the, of the form, it says this is the total amount that the trust, you know, is buying from us, basically. Okay? Because it's, it's a sale, so it has to be a, a, a some kind of contribution. Right? So the difference is now that we have a bill of sale, if there's any, if there's any uh, real estate, then the deed has to go with that. So, you know, bill of sale plus a deed if, it needs, if, a, if a deed is required. So once that is done, in our case it was like $2.8 million, something like that, then the trust owes us that money. So we don't want the trust to pay us right now, but we can draw upon that whenever we want to because the trust is going to give us what they call a demand note or an I, it's like an IOU, right? So... If, for example, I need that. So let's go back to my son. If I said personally, I'm going to give him that that $10,000 or $20,000. Well, I could take it out of my taxable income. If I was getting a salary, I could do that. Or what I could do is I say, okay, the trust owes me $2.8 million. I'm going to have the trust cut me a check for $20,000. I'm going to give that to my son. That $20,000 is not a taxable event for me because it's just a return of capital. I'm just getting back where I pay for it. I mean, it's, it's there was no profit in that transaction. Okay? Mm-hmm. So now as I run my 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 life and, and we do our taxes and so forth, I buy everything, every dime I spend is with my trust debit card. So I have a QuickBooks account, just like I have for my S-Corp. And I have, you know, in QuickBooks, you have columns of what you attribute every single transaction towards. Is it an expense? Is it a a debit? Is it a credit? You know, what was it for? And so on and so forth. So even if I pay with my debit card for something that's not a trust expense, I don't care because when I submit my stuff to my accountant, if he sees that something, if I paid for like a vacation, and it was not a trust expense, and all the stuff that I paid for with that debit card, he's gonna move that from a trust expense column over to the debit card column. So let's say at the end of the year, I had $80,000 of non-trust expenses that I use a trust debit card to pay for. Well, all he's gonna do is subtract that 80,000 from my deb- from my demand note. And that's not taxable event, right? because it's just return of capital. So that's how I'm able to live using this trust without having to really pay much in the way of taxes because that's the genius of the system. And it's all legal.
0: What what happens at the time of your passing, like with the trust? Um, Like obviously like if I had, and I don't even know the name of it, um, like a living trust Mm -hmm. uh, at the time of passing away, my kids get what's called the step up in basis. And then they can sell the properties if they want to. Mm-hmm. How is this different than that as it relates to estate taxes, inheritance tax, mm-hmm. uh, step up some basis, etc.? cetera?
1: It's different in a, in a few ways. It's similar in other ways. First of all, in my trust, I have four beneficiaries. I have my two adult children, my wife and my grandson. My wife also has a designation called successor trustee. So if something happens to me, if I get incapacitated or I pass away, then she becomes the trustee. Now, we have a stipulation in our trust book that if she and I go together, hopefully not, but if we do, then my daughter will become the successor trustee and she will continue. All of the wealth, all of the assets, everything that we've worked our entire lives to to uh, attain that we want to pass <laughs> down to our to our kids and our grandkids, that's all inside our trust. And we want to keep it inside the trust. So what's gonna ha- when we go, all that's gonna happen is that my daughter's gonna take over as trustee, but the money coming in the trust is still coming in from our assets, right? And she's just gonna she's just gonna continue the way we're doing right now. So there's and no there's no inheritance tax, no estate taxes, nothing like that at all.
0: And then if she wanted to sell some of the assets she could Um, can she sure
1: she's She's a trustee
0: yes she can do whatever
1: yes okay Mm
0: -hmm. cool um do people get creative with the spendthrift trust meaning like um i read something about like people using it for like divorce settlements or
1: yeah i mean it's it's the ultimate prenuptial agreement so you know i have my wife and i've already decided this you know my son when he gets before he gets married we're getting him a trust (laughs) And and then you know we can move something from our trust into his trust, whatever we want him to have. But when that happens before he gets married, uh, they get divorced. She ain't get anything because he's the he'll be the trustee, but he's not. You know, she you know, it's not it's not communal property. It stays inside the trust, so she won't have anything. So you could do that theoretically. I mean, you're a pretty horrible person, I guess, if you do this. But I mean, theoretically, if you have if you're if you're married. I mean I could screw my wife so bad if I wanted to because, you know, all of our assets, everything's inside this trust. I'm the trustee, I have hundred percent control. If I wanted to say, see you later, honey, I could remove her like that from the trust. So I don't want to. So if, if
0: somebody was good if somebody was thinking about getting divorced, they could actually create a spendthrift trust. Ahead of time, transfer all the assets. Well, again, you don't there transfer with a them. You
1: sell them. You sell them. And if it's communal property, okay. then it has to be sold into the trust for both of them. So it's not like you can get away scot free. If you decide to do that, you get divorced. And remember, with my wife, it was all communal property, so most of it. But let's say you know the trust owes her X amount of money. So the trust isn't going to have to pay her. Because there's, there's a legal document that says the trust owes her half of whatever we sold into the property. Well, she still gets access to that, but she can't get she can't get the properties. She can't get the income.
0: Yeah. What about costs? Like, is it like, do you have to make a certain amount of income, or have to have like a certain amount of net worth in order for this to make sense?
1: Yeah. And then, I mean, uh, I don't want to put a label on it because I have clients that. You know, I have one client that makes a little over a hundred thousand a year. He's a truck. He's an owner-operator truck driver, but it makes a lot of sense for him because, I mean, for him, he pays like ten, twelve thousand, fifteen thousand dollars a year in taxes, and with this, he's not. He does not pay in, He pays a tenth of that now, but most importantly, he sold his rig into the trust. The trust is leasing it back to his LLC, so he's saving a significant amount of money. By the LLC paying him, I mean paying the trust rent or lease for that rig. But more importantly, what if he gets into a catastrophic accident? What if he kills somebody? You know, I mean, think about that. That's the worst-case scenario, but it happens a lot. If he doesn't have a trust, they're coming in and getting everything. They're going to get the insurance. They're going to come after him. Come after his trust, They're going to they're going to take everything. But with the trust, that all his because he's gonna sell, he sold all of his business assets into the trust, including the rig, they're untouchable now. All anyone can do is go after his um, insurance, that's it. He's protected, his family's protected, his business is protected. So, um, so for him, even though maybe the tax savings was didn't make as much sense you know, on its own, but adding that kind of uh, asset protection made a lot of sense.
0: So can you give us a couple of examples of different situation that business owners would benefit from this?
1: Okay. Well, that was one right there. So, um, yeah, uh-huh. all right. So I'll give you one with a real estate um, real estate agent or even a tenant. Yeah. Well, let's say real estate agent. Okay. So most agents, they're paid a commission that's tied to their social security number. So correct. what they can do is the same thing. The commissions go to their – are paid to them. And of course, all that's going to go down to their Schedule C in their tax return. So they're going to um, normally that's you know they're going to be taxed on that. But you can set up a business trust with this regular trust, a non-grantor trust, that we do, spin trust. And so that real estate agent can sign the, the, the trust can do a personal service, a professional services agreement with her as a real estate agent. She keeps, you know, 95% of her commissions can now go over to the um, business trust, and she's going to run her business through that. She's going to run her, you know, make all, she pay all her expenses and so on and so forth. And then the the her her, Spencer trust is going to sign an agreement, a limited limited partnership agreement with that business trust. So whatever's left over can move down as a as limited partnership profit sharing into her beneficial trust, which is not going to be. It's a passive income, so won't be taxable for this trust. So by doing that, she's moving legally moving a huge amount of her of her money over to the trust. You know, but it's as an, it's as an expense. If listen, there's a there's a um, there, the IRS has a concrete bedrock rule of the assignment of income that the he or she or it, whoever earns the income, pays the taxes, okay? Mm -hmm. And so when people hear this, they think, oh, you can't do that, That's you're violating the assignment of income uh, uh, doctrine, but it's not, because if she took that 95,000, let's say she had a commission for 100,000, she took 95,000 and moved it to the trust, that's taxed, that's not, you can't do that. They'll be taxed, okay? But by doing it this way, all she's doing is adding additional expenses to her as an agent. A business can pay expenses, right? There's nothing wrong with that. People, you know, you know, you can sell, a business can sell its assets into the trust, and the trust can lease those back. And the IRS will allow up to 80 per, 70% of the business's net income to be used as a taxable, you know, for a lease payment, right? I mean, it varies. It goes up and down. It depends on... On your cash flow and so forth, but just in general, but that's that's the most you can get. So, you know, businesses do leaseback strategies all the time. That's all we're doing. We're just adding additional expenses to a business that the business pays to the trust, but in a way that it's passive income for the trust. You see how that works? Yeah. Okay. So that's what I'm saying. Is that that's that's one example. So another example, let's say that someone, uh, a 1099 employee, let's say that he he's doing does really well, or he or she does really well, makes five, four or five hundred thousand dollars a year, and it's not salary, it's not W-2, but it's 1099. So in this situation, what they could do is have the have their clients pay them into an LLC, make the trust as much as a 90% limited member, a multi-member LLC. They're they're controlling member, but they only have 10%, maximum, okay. And so what will happen is is that that, that um, 1099 person will sell again the assets of the of the LLC to the trust. The trust leases them back to the LLC, and then after the lease payments are paid by the trust, the LLC's income is going to go down drastically. But even whatever is left. 90, up to 90% of that can go over to the trust as limited partnership profit sharing. So theoretically, if you got a million dollars of net taxable income in an LLC, you could move not, as much as $970,000 of that over to the trust through a leaseback strategy and limited partnership profit sharing.
0: I love it. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there anything else that you think that would be helpful to our viewers as it relates to the uh, spendthrift uh, trust?
1: Yeah, I would just just say a couple of things. Uh, The part of the tax code that makes this legal is IRS code 643B, right? And so as someone that, you know, files taxes, my trust files taxes, I know how this works. And, you know, we have We have a network of accountants who specialize in doing 1041 tax returns for clients who have this trust, this specific trust. The most senior one has done this for 33 years. And he's done tens of thousands of trust, tax returns in his career. Not one time has it ever been audited. Not once, okay? When when the trust was copyrighted in 2001, I believe, uh, the IRS came and asked for a copy of the trust for them to examine. So they came to the office, the law firm's office, and they were given one, of course. They came back, I don't know, a few weeks later, and the agent said, yeah, you're good. And he left an opinion letter that said, yeah, this is is 100% legal. Um, You know, there is 50 plus years this has been out there. And so I, I hear a lot of people saying, well, it's too good to be true. It's like, well, yes and no, I mean, it was the idea of, of, of being, you know, Columbus going to China was too good to be true, but he made it to America. You know, I mean, you know, it's, it's just because you don't have the knowledge doesn't mean it's, it's too good to be true. Obviously the knowledge is there, the experience is there. And this is, you know, this, this part of the tax code has been there since it was first passed in the early 1900s. So they they put the it book. there. If it's there and you could use it.
0: And then you actually help clients set this up, right? Yes. So if somebody wanted to get in contact with you to be able to set this up, or maybe somebody had a couple of questions about this, what would mm-hmm. be the best way for them to do
1: that? You know, I think the best way, I'm a very simple person. I operated my real estate investing business through my cell phone. And I've had the same phone number since 2002. And so... You know, every I, I've given my phone out to everybody. I don't, I don't even care about hiding anything. Take my phone number, okay? I would say, send me a text. My number is 407-902-7827. Send me a text and say, I want more information about the trust. I'd be glad to send it to you.
0: I love it. And then they could also follow you on social media, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as well too if they wanted to
1: yes I'm, um, I'm i'm big on TikTok. you can find me at, at ironclad trust all right i'm on youtube just you keep to my youtube channel it's don you know youtube.com senior s-e-n-i-o-r trust specialist okay i'm saying this is don the senior trust specialist you can go find me on, it's easy to find me on youtube okay i'm on facebook instagram linkedin so yeah, just, uh, you can find me.
0: I love it. Great. So I, I want to say thank you, Don, uh, for obviously coming on the show. This is a topic that we've never uh, covered on the mm-hmm. show. Um, I think it's like a niche type of topic, but I think that there's people out there that can sure. benefit from something like this. Absolutely. Uh, for me personally, um, any good books that you'd recommend on this that like if somebody wanted to learn more about it? Uh,
1: um, it's it's Essentially, you said that because I'm actually in the process of publishing a book about it. I love it. Yeah, so I, I will definitely it. reach out to you and uh, you can get my book because it's coming out real yeah. soon in May. We're going to publish it in May.
0: I love it. You know, it's funny. Um, I did an episode on uh, self-directed IRAs and the first time I did it, my eyes were just like glossy. Mm-hmm. And then I read a book on it and now I feel like, okay, now I understand the topic a lot, a mm-hmm. lot better. Yes. Um, so whenever I have somebody on the show like you that comes in with a topic that maybe I'm not asked familiar with mm-hmm. i always read a book on it and then that helps me understand it fully so yeah i'd be excited about the yeah book. i'll definitely um, get you one when it comes when, out depending when it comes out we may yes. be able to link it to the to the podcast Great. so perfect for for our viewers out there i mm-hmm. just want to say thank you guys uh don thank you so much for coming on uh this was another episode of the morales uh group show uh today we talked about spendthrift trust non-grantor irrevocable complex discretionary spendthrift trust. Um, If you liked this episode, make sure to hit the the subscribe button. If you feel that this episode would be helpful to a friend, make sure to hit the uh, share button. Thanks again, Don. And I look forward to doing another episode maybe on short sales with you.
1: Thank you.